Konnichiwa and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, the podcast from Tokyo, Japan, where we use science and history to learn about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric, and I'd sincerely like to thank you for listening to our show today. I hope your day is going absolutely fantastic, no matter how long it's been thus far. Now, before we begin, you may have noticed that our podcasts are being released on different days each week. Since we just started, we are still trying to figure out release schedules and which day works best for you, the listener. So please vote with your downloads or let us know on Twitter or Instagram, where you can also see what we're up to and engage in conversation with us about anything. We have the links to those in the episode description below. Today is part two of our four-part series on the history of board games. Today's topics, chess and backgammon, with a smattering of others as we venture our way through much of the common era. Our goal today is to use chess and backgammon as our tour buses of time. While learning about them and seeing the sights, we can look out the window and see everything else happening during their rises and falls. From religion and mythology to class divides, from Mesopotamia to the modern United States, these two games are no mere pawns of history. They are masterful narrators of humanity's story. Let's hop back into our time machine and start our journey. Ladies and gentlemen, please buckle your seatbelts and keep your hands and legs inside the time machine at all times. And please wait until the machine comes to a complete stop before exiting! Welcome to India, 5th century common era. The country is flourishing under the Gupta Empire that started in 319 CE with Chandragupta I. After his marriage to Kumar Devi, Chandragupta began years of conquest that took control of much of India and now riches pour in. This is known as the Golden Age of India. Poets, artists, and writers have sponsorships. Science and mathematics make huge leaps forward, and Aryabhata has theorized that the Earth rotates around the Sun centuries before Copernicus. Just watch out for the war elephants. Whew, close one. It is here that we begin a story of one of the greatest games of all time, chess, or as it's known right now, Chaturanga. It uses the board from Ashtapada, a racing game played on a board with 64 squares. Chaturanga, instead of a racing game, was a war game, with the pieces representing the four divisions of the Gupta Empire military, infantry, horsemen, war elephants, and ships, hence why it was called Chaturanga, which means four limbs. Of course, players also controlled the Raja. Who it was that made this transformation is a subject of many stories. The first is detailed in the Shahnameh, a Persian text that we will encounter again later. It tells the story of Talhand and Gav, two half-brothers who are vying for the throne of India. They meet in battle and Talhand dies on his elephant without a wound. Believing that Gav had killed Talhand, their mother is distraught. Gav tells his mother that Talhand did not die by the hands of him or his men, no, 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 but she does not understand how this could be. So the sages of the court invent the game of chess, detailing the pieces and how they move to show the mother of the princes how the battle unfolded and how Talhan died of fatigue when surrounded by his enemies. To describe the death, the term used is Shah Mat, checkmate. 
in other stories, it was a way of teaching. Depending on the story, it was either made to show the Raj that all of his subjects had a job and place in society and he could only function properly by taking care of them, or it was made to teach about how different classes had to know their place because lower pieces could not capture higher ones and the Raj could not be killed. Whichever story one subscribes to, the impact of Chaturanga's inception was inarguable. Two revolutionary concepts came into fruition with this game. Different powers for different pieces, which gave different pieces differing values, and the idea that the entire game rested on the outcome of a single piece. This was still far from the chess we know today, though the extent of the differences has been controversial over the years. Let me give you two interesting ones. According to some, the game was still played with throwing sticks acting like dice to dictate which pieces the players could move, which integrated luck into the puzzle. This is known somewhat as the ancestor of dice chess. This led to Chaturanga games turning into games of betting, which caused outrage in religious circles. Buddhists urged their followers to not even learn the rules of the game. In the Hindu text, the laws of Manu, which weren't really laws to be enforced, but rather followed, banned games with dice, which led to some of its followers never playing. In fact, the widespread outrage of the game in religious circles is presumed by some to be the reason that it was eventually changed into a game that involved no dice, instead giving each player free reign over which piece to move in any given turn, although this part of the theory is, to this point, unproven. Another interesting theory was that the game was for four people in which there were four rajas, or kings. The players would be on two teams of two players and work together to take out the other two Rajas before turning on each other. Rajas could also come back in via prisoner swap. This theory, however, part of the Cox-Forbes theory, is not taken seriously by most chess historians because it was bore out of a theory that has been since debunked, the Cox-Forbes theory. Apparently, when you say you used a text from 3000 BC and that you use certain references, and then someone checks your work and those references don't exist and the text was actually from AD 1500, not 3000 BC, people tend not to believe you. I simply wanted to mention them here because many sources actually cite these theories as fact, and it can neither be supported nor totally refuted because there is no record of the game from the days of its inception. What we do know is that there are variants of the game for four players, some of which included betting, and that over the years the two-player variant was the mainstream success, with 16 pieces per player, including a very weak advisor piece. Since killing rajas was taboo in the society, the aim of the game became creating a stalemate, checkmate, or by creating a bear king. No, no, not you... The bear as in B-A-R-E, meaning no other pieces existed in that king's army. <sighs> this version of the game is what was taken around by merchants across the Silk Road. It is by this that the Persians were introduced to the game, and a legend was created as to how they learned the rules. Again, the Shalameh tells the story, and this is the version translated by the British Museum. One day, an ambassador from the king of India arrived at the Persian court of Khosros, and after an oriental exchange of courtesies, the ambassador produced rich presents from his sovereign, and among them was an elaborate board with curiously carved pieces of ebony and ivory. He then issued a challenge. 
O great king, fetch your wise men and let them solve the mysteries of this game. If they succeed, my master, the king of India, will pay tribute as an overlord. But if they fail, it will be proof that the Persians are of lower intellect, and we shall demand tribute from Iran. The courtiers were shown the board, and after a day and a night in deep thought, one of them, Bozol Khmer, solved the mystery and was richly rewarded by his delighted sovereign. Now this story is from a Persian text, so we have to remember to take it with a grain of sand, uh, salt. But it is interesting because the story attempts to drive home several points to the audience. Not only is the king of kings of Persia greater than others, but also the Sasanian Persian Empire is the greatest empire. Secondly, Bozogmer is not only the greatest of the Persian sages, but of all the sages in the world. He is also able to defeat the Indian sage three times at chess, their own game. The message of the story is simple. Persia is the greatest empire of late antiquity, its king is the greatest kings, and its ministers and sages are the wisest. This story is probably false, but it is interesting how games are used to tell of mythologies of great rulers, and that chess has already become a game in which those good at it are seen as intellectually superior people. It was Persia that introduced fixed starting positions for the playing pieces, the throwing six dictated positions in the Indian version, as well as changing the rajas into shahs. The minister became a bodyguard of the shah, and the navy ships, since Persia didn't have a big navy, became rooks, meaning war chariots. But the most significant change was in warning each other whenever they threatened their opponent's shot, and concluding the game by declaring shatmat, meaning the king is helpless or the king is defeated, depending on the translation. We know this now as checkmate, and this name will be translated into native languages as it spreads, where the French word for check is eche, which becomes chess in English. During this time, power was being fought over in this area. But meanwhile, a new religion you might have heard of had been created and amassed a huge following, Islam. Having just conquered Arabia, Muslim armies used the turmoil of infighting to conquer Persia in 636. The game spread all over the Arab world and became incredibly popular with scholars and caliphs, including the one who ordered the invasion of Persia. However, was it allowed? Wasn't it a gambling game? And if so, doesn't the Quran warn against playing it? Even if it isn't a gambling game, people seem to be so obsessed with it that it takes them away from doing their religious duties. And... Another thing, those pieces that resemble military units goes against the Islamic Caliphate's rules about having imagery that resembles humans and animals. Okay, so you might see where this is going. The result was that chess could be played in private and could not involve gambling. The playing pieces were transformed into abstract shapes instead of their lifelike counterparts, including rectangular blocks, tall cylinders, and curved cones. During this time, Chess gets brought east along the Silk Road to places like China, where they place the pieces on the intersections of the squares instead of inside of them like the game Go, and in Japan where it becomes Shogi, a game where you can use the captured pieces against the other player and get your pieces promoted. What I hope is becoming apparent is that chess has evolved throughout its early years, 
Although still popular in each country, it has literally shape-shifted to reflect the society it had arrived in. From rajas to shah to now abstract shapes, chess's evolution tells us a much about the society it lived in as the game itself. But it is after the Muslim conquest into Europe, after a Muslim army conquered much of Iberia, and in between the wars that would be fought for hundreds of years between Christians and Muslims, that Europe would become acquainted with the game. This period of time was a time where cultural exchanges happened between Islamic and Christian worlds, leading to Europeans becoming reacquainted with Greek and Roman philosophers, make leaps in mathematics, and learn the game of chess. By 760, France was playing it, and by the 12th century, it had made its way through Switzerland, Germany, and Scandinavia into some islands off the coast of Scotland. It became a part of courtly education, and pages who aspired to become knights had to learn to master it. It also became romantic. The medieval practice of having noble women constantly accompanied by chaperones meant there were few opportunities for courting couples to get some privacy, but it was acceptable for men to visit women in their chambers alone in order to play chess. This, quite unsurprisingly, led to chess becoming very popular with unmarried couples, and the game can be seen in romantic poetry of the time. The Catholic Church, unlike their Islamic counterparts, saw great lessons in the game, with Pope Innocent III particularly linking the game with lessons about heaven and hell. Another common lesson taken from chess, again at this time, is the idea that chess models feudal society with all people, from the king to the lowly peasants represented, and one must know their place and adhere to the restrictions of that rank. Basically, know your place. Which is actually directly resembling one of the stories of its origins that I told you about earlier. Although variants existed throughout Europe, the same problem arose. It was boring and slow. Weirdly enough, some places went backwards in development, going back to dice chess we saw earlier in India. During this time, checkers was invented when someone experimenting with chess combined the pieces from backgammon and the board from chess. After years of trying to make it more exciting, the solution was finally found. Make the pieces stronger. Make the game more dramatic. The bishop gained the power to move any distance diagonally. Pawns could move two squares in the opening move. But the biggest change was the addition of the queen. You see, up until this point, that advisor role from way back when was still there. And it kind of sucked. It could move one space diagonally. Lame. Viziers didn't really work in Europe, so people just called it the queen even though it was the same piece. Then came a new wave of female rulers. Isabella I of Castile, Isabeth I of England, and Catherine de' Medici were among the powerful women showing that queens could rule just as well as men, if not better. One interesting story is of Caterina Sforza of Italy, who believed her husband would not be a good ruler, who occupied the papal fortress of Castel Sant'Angelo while seven months pregnant until the new pope guaranteed her family's land and title. When a band of conspirators murdered her husband and took her and her children prisoners, she persuaded them to let her go to negotiate the surrender, 
then are being released order the troops to get ready. The rebels threatened to execute her children in front of her, and she basically responded by flipping them off. A bit like Ukraine to Russian warships. In a daze from the shock, the rebels were defeated and the ringleader was dragged by horse around town and done other things I can't talk about on a family-friendly podcast. The queen was made to be the most powerful unit on the board, reflecting these cultural shifts. It wasn't just about finding something that would make the game more exciting, it was a way of making the game again more accurate to the society it was in. And in Italy, where Caterina Sforza prospered, this new version of chess was called the Mad Queen's Game. And this development accelerated the popularity of the game. It went from a game that was slow, taking weeks or months to finish, to a game of excitement and drama. Chess became about creativity and expression, starting what would be called the Romantic Era of Chess. It emphasized quick, tactical maneuvers that can involve brash sacrifices rather than long-term strategic planning. One of the most famous players of attacking play was Paul Morphy, an American. However, I think a more famous example of the style is in a game, the Immortal game, where Adolf Anderson beat Lionel Kierseritsky, sacrificed both rooks, a bishop, and a queen, checkmating his opponent with only three, three remaining minor pieces. With the new surge of popularity, many treatises and books start to be written about chess theory, with one of the first printed works coming out in 1497 by Luis Ramirez de la Sena. It continued slowly until about the mid-18th century with the writings of François-André Philidor, who famously wrote, The Pawns Are the Soul of Chess. Chess clubs opened up bringing the game from the aristocracy to the coffee house with the most famous one being the Café de la Regence in Paris, where Voltaire, Rousseau, Napoleon, and Benjamin Franklin all played. It was also the place where Karl Marx first met Frederick Ingalls. English and French café clientele would start facing each other to prove who was better. Tournaments were organized in Europe, with masters from each country out to prove their land's dominance in the game. Chess clocks were introduced to speed these games up. The shift started to go from romantic, passionate play to strategic, reading chess theory books to study on past games and develop counter strategies, and this ushered in the scientific era of chess. It was because of this increased competitiveness and these tournaments that introduced the need to standardize the chessboard, as each country had their own pieces or boards and some of them were just not very useful. The Staunton set was created and was the most successful, and is now what we think of if someone asks you to draw a chess set. It was classy, introducing neoclassical architectural styles into the pieces, but with each piece still being easily recognizable and tactile. And to me, what was most important about this set was it was cheap, meaning that more people could now afford to play the game. The 1900s were an interesting time for chess. Positional chess and hypermodernism dominated the early years, with Emmanuel Lasker holding the world champion title for 27 years. From 1927 to 2006, players from the Soviet Union and Russia held the world championship title with only two exceptions. This is extremely purposeful. The story of Soviet chess begins in the Civil War, when chess was enlisted as a training tool for military recruits. 
After the Bolshevik victory, a very similar rationale was used to promote chess as an instrument for training party members in the burgeoning Communist Party. The same attributes desired in soldiers were also desired in party activists, and chess was seen as a tool for nurturing these attributes. Starting in the 1920s, the state-sponsored chess program was greatly enlarged, and at the same time, its ideological rationale shifted. By the mid-1930s, this led to the cultivation of a generation of world-caliber players. The Soviet ability to stand toe-to-toe with the world's best exemplified by the Stalinist slogan, Catch Up and Overtake. Soviet chess now reinvented itself as a propaganda device for touting the superiority of Soviet culture. The world championship was conquered in 1948, and Soviet domination of world chess was a very important weapon in the cultural front of the Cold War. And that was the important thing. The 1900s, if nothing else, showed how chess could not just be something used to plan wars, it could be an indirect part of it. Bobby Fischer was one of the most enigmatic chess figures of all time, and the only player able to break down the Soviet chess wall in the second half of the 20th century. In 1972, Fischer and Spassky played the match that captivated the entire world, even people who knew nothing about chess. This was not only viewed as the most anticipated world chess championship event of all time, but it had great geopolitical ramifications as well. The U.S. and Soviet Union were not only fighting the Cold War, but were also fighting for chess supremacy. And Fischer won in one of the greatest comebacks of all time. The late 1900s also ushered in something new, chess computers. Garry Kasparov was the first major player to heavily use computers for preparation and study of the game, and he defeated the strongest computers of the late 1980s and early 1990s in several highly publicized matches. But he was finally defeated by the supercomputer Deep Blue in 1997, the first time a computer had defeated a world champion in a match that changed the world. In 2005, computers were finally seen as much more powerful than any human could ever become. This was partly due to a supercomputer, Hydra, easily defeating Michael Adams, who was ranked 7 in the world at the time. Hydra won the match with a 5.5 points out of 6 games. Computer engines continue to get stronger and stronger, and it is thought that chess computers can soundly beat even the best human players. Right now, the top human player, Magnus Carlsen, has been the reigning world champion since 2013 and has remained the highest rated player in the world for a long time. Because of the vast amount of resources to analyze and research with, including chess engines, the competition near the top is fiercer than ever, with more players. And for that reason, some believe Carlsen may just be the strongest player of all time. From the Guptas to Magnus Carlsen, chess has been around the world, spawned innumerable variants, been changed by wars and religious texts, been a way to date before marriage, and continues to be a sign of intellect, logic, and precision. New players and communities are still entertained by the best, with chess grandmasters getting thousands of views on their Twitch streams, and shows like The Queen's Gambit still continuing to be made and beloved. Chess may have changed its rules and images, but I think the best part is that it continues to be a game in which anyone can access, tracing back to its folk game roots. Let's take a break from today's regularly scheduled programming to bring you a special report from Japan on Go. We are going live to Eric to bring you an update from Tokyo Erika. How are you? Thank you for having me. Seems you were going through quite a bit of transformations over there in the chess circuit. Go has been mainly sticking around in three countries, Japan, Korea, and China. 
In Japan, Go was originally super popular with aristocrats and the imperial household. It was definitely in the tale of Genji, but remained relatively stable in popularity until the 1600s when it boomed. Tokugawa Ieyasu unified Japan and made four schools of Go. Yes, that's right. Like the Soviets with chess, Japan made state-sponsored initiatives for Go, providing subsidies to the four major Go houses. Official tournaments began in 1628, but the last of these so-called castle games were in 1863 because of government crises. Apparently, Go isn't as important as keeping the government intact. But Korea is actually the most popular place for Go today. Between 5-10% to of the population regularly plays. The first evidence we have of Go in Korea was a board found from the 800s. Japan started the Go Association in the 1920s. The Korean professional system was established in the 1950s, and the Chinese system followed a couple decades later in 1978. There are now many tournaments for Go between the three countries, notably the Super Go series. Go has seen limited worldwide attention. Oscar Korschelt, a German engineer, is credited with being the first person to try to popularize Go outside of East Asia. He learned about the game from Nurase Shuho when he worked in Japan from 1878 to 1886. Korschelt published a detailed article on Go in 1880. A few years later, he published a book based on this article. He brought the game to Europe, especially to Germany and Austria, and thus became the first person to systematically describe Go in a Western language. So since he learned Go in Japan, the terms of Go in Western languages come from Japanese, and that's why Westerners generally refer to the game by its Japanese game Go instead of Baduk, as it's called in Korea, even though it's more popular in Korea today. Western players' interest increased in the 1950s, and in 1978, Manfred Wimmer became the first Westerner to receive a professional player certificate from an East Asian professional Go association. It was not until 2000 that a Westerner, Michael Redman, achieved a professional 9-dan rating, a top rank awarded by East Asian Go associations. Go proved a lot more difficult for a computer to beat the best human players, but it was eventually accomplished when in 2016, Lee Sedol was defeated by the computer program AlphaGo. And that's it for the check-in with Go. Back to you in the studio. And with that check-in, it's time to go back. Back in time. Back to back game. Wait, this is hot! <laughs> That's better. <sighs> Welcome back to Persia. We are back in the story from earlier where an Indian king challenged the Persian king to figure out how to play chess. Thanks to the sages, they were able to figure it out, proving their intelligence. Now, the story goes that not only did the sage Bozogomer figure out chess, but he came back with a new challenge for the Indian sages. They couldn't figure it out, and he named this game after the founder of the Sasanian Empire. It can be shortened to Nard, but the game is quite similar to Backgammon and is seen by some as its ancestor. Nard is itself a different game, but the story progresses to explain it similarly to Backgammon. The invention of Backgammon gives the sage even more prestige and fame in the realm, and enables him to extract more tribute. 
This feat and others have made him famous in Persian literature, where he has become a semi-legendary and semi-historical person. Now, this story again is probably fictitious, but the place of origination is hotly contested. What we know is that it dates back 5,000 years to Mesopotamia, and Egyptians, Sumerians, and Persians all enjoyed a game that somewhat resembled something like the backgammon we play today. Part of it is that Egyptians may have used similar boards for backgammon-like games, and Senate, which we talked about in part one. In fact, this is the part where I need to apologize because I was wrong last time. The game that Romans brought that was called Tables was actually the game that more resembled backgammon, not Senate. Initially, this game was known as Ludus Duodicum Scriptorium, or the game of 12 lines, but its name was changed over the years. This game became an addiction in some areas, with people using it as a gambling game. Boards were found carved into the courtyards of many palaces in Pompeii. The Emperor Claudius was a keen player. He had a special board built on the back of his chariot to relieve the tedium of long journeys. Emperor Nero was a prodigious gambler and played for today's equivalent of $10,000 a game. But part of the reason I bring up the story of the sage is because of what we can learn from the story. You see, backgammon wasn't just a game created to fool India's delegation. It had religious meaning. Since the Indians could not discern the game's logic, the king asked the sage to explain the game. And Bozrak Mir's answer, which clearly demonstrates that the cosmological significance of the game, is central to Zoroastrian beliefs. Now, what is this Zoroastrianism? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it, and you can stop me when it sounds like something you may know. There is only one god. There is heaven and hell. There are angels and demons. Sound familiar? Well, Zoroastrianism is the second oldest religion in the world, and historians cite it as one of the early influences of Abrahamic religions. So, the sage, he said the game is analogous to the processes of the cosmos and human life. Fate is the primary actor in the lives of men, and the role of the dice in the game performs the function of fate. The pieces represent humans, and their function in the universe is governed by the seven planets and the twelve zodiac signs. The shape of the game board is likened to span the goddess of the earth, thus humans are functioning or living upon a cosmological being that is alive. The pieces represent the thirty days and nights. The dice represent the constellations and firmament whose turns and positions decide one's movements and predict human life. Hitting a piece is likened to killing, and when the pieces come back to the game, it signifies the act of resurrection. The difference between the game of chess and backgammon, however, is significant. While the game of chess is a game likened to battle, backgammon is based on the throw of the dice, thus is completely subject to fate. So again, you see that the die represent fate, a message we saw in Senate. And whether or not this story is true, the legendary status of the story is telling in its own right. It tells of a game that could have started as having religious symbology and meaning, but turned into something secular. Essentially, it could have had the opposite evolution as Senate or even the game of Ur. It wouldn't be the only game of this time period to have this trajectory. You may recall playing the game of shoots and ladders or snakes and ladders, depending on which side of the pond you're on. Well, this game began as a game tied with Hindu philosophy, which contrasted destiny and desire. 
the board was covered with symbolic images, the top featuring gods, angels, and majestic beings, while the rest of the board was covered with pictures of animals, flowers, and people. The ladders represented virtues such as generosity, faith, and humility, while the snakes represented vices such as lust and murder and theft. The morality lesson of the game was that a person can attain salvation through doing good, whereas by doing evil, one will be reborn as lower forms of life. The number of ladders was less than the number of snakes as a reminder that a path of good morals is much more difficult to tread than a path of sins. Later in its life, when the game was brought to England, the Indian virtues and vices were replaced by English ones in hopes of better reflecting the Victorian doctrines of morality, so there were squares of fulfillment, grace, and success were accessible by ladders of thrift, penitence, and industry, and snakes of indulgence, disobedience, and indolence caused one to end up in illness, disgrace, and poverty. But now... Most of this imagery has gone away. It went from a virtuous game to something completely lost of any kind of moral teachings. Going back to the gammon, it is somewhat amazing that a game that went from possibly religious symbolism to secular was, in part, saved by religion as well, in an albeit indirect way. As the Roman Empire crumbled, so too did the popularity of backgammon. That is, until the Crusades, when many of the Christians who went to battle with Muslim forces rediscovered the game in the Holy Land. It got so popular with Christian soldiers during the Third Crusade that Richard I of England and King Philip II of France had to issue a joint decree that banned anyone under the rank of knight from playing games for money and put a cap on how much knights and clergymen could bet. Because it was seen as a gambling game, this meant that until the Middle Ages, the game was one of nobility only. I'm just trying to imagine what the military recruitment videos would have looked like. Like, hey, come join to be a knight. We have backgammon. Eh? Eh? Anyways, once the Middle Ages came about, people from all walks of life were playing. From palaces to inns, anywhere one looked, there were games of backgammon being played. Like chess, backgammon made its way into the arts from writings like the Canterbury Tales and Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost to painting like John Steen's 17th century masterpiece argument over a card game and probably most famously The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. These paintings, especially the latter, showed some people's distaste of backgammon, especially that of the church. The Catholic church did not like how popular this gambling game was and constantly set about trying to get it banned succeeding once in France in 1254. Although many variations existed across the Middle East and Europe, certain variations began to become mainstream by the 1600s. The British version called Irish developed two interesting peculiarities that seemed to make it more interesting. If players threw a double, they could use the numbers roll for four moves instead of two. Also, it added a scoring system that gave players extra points depending on how far behind their opponent was when the game ended. This latter point made it especially fun for gamblers and was the inspiration behind the new name given to this game, Backgammon, or Back Plus Game, how far back were you from your opponent. The rules were put in a book by Edmund Hoyle in 1743, and since then, very few rules have changed. This new version caught on quickly, with Thomas Jefferson using it as a relaxing activity while working on the Declaration of Independence. But it was not meant to last. You see, 
Up until this point, the reason that backgammon thrived was because it was a gambling game without the stigmas of playing cards, and so it was the best gamblers could get away with, generally speaking. However, by the 1920s, backgammon's popularity was waning because playing cards were now less stigmatized, and compared with card games, the gambling pot for backgammon was small and unexciting. But sometime around 1925 or 1926, something that would change the game forever was invented. It occurred when somebody came up with the idea of being able to double the stakes. The doubling cube, well, the dial first, was invented and made backgammon as much of a draw for big pots as card games. The cube made the pot increase exponentially. How it works is that there is an original bet. Throughout the game, when someone feels confident, they can request a doubling of the stakes. The other player either accepts the new stakes or concedes. This goes up from 2 to 4 to 8, all the way up to 64, and this, in fact, is just a cube cap. You can go past the cube if you so wish. Kind of similar to Patoli that we talked about in part 1. If you cannot gamble anymore or you choose not to, you lose. Do you take the risk and keep playing and possibly lose more, or do you just call it right there? This temporarily invigorated the backgammon scene, but the Great Depression had other ideas. It wouldn't be until Prince Alexei Obolensky that backgammon would come back into vogue. As our final story of the day, Obolensky came from Russia and loved backgammon. His family had moved to New York and he had spent time working in U.S. intelligence, but his true loves were backgammon and being a playboy partier, this latter part giving him a bevy of wealthy contacts. A new hotel was opening in the Bahamas and asked him if he could get people to play a big money backgammon tournament there, and it was a huge success. Of course, part of the fun was in the party itself, with the first day's events being delayed due to the party from the previous night going on for a bit too long. Rich people won and lost thousands of dollars both in the tournament games and for fun on the side tables. Obolensky realized that this was how to get people hooked on his favorite game, large tournaments and parties. People from James Bond film producer Albert Broccoli to billionaire tycoons were participating in international backgammon tournaments, and more and more cities like London, New York, and Las Vegas were calling to host the events. Soon, backgammon was the game. Michael Caine and Roger Moore, Joan Crawford and Larry Bird, they all were pictured playing the trendy game. Hugh Hefner even threw backgammon parties at the Playboy Mansion with celebrities like Cher and Diana Ross. Infused with the smoky glamour of the hotels, bars, and clubs in which professionals gambled on high-stakes games, the mood of the era can be summed up by Roger Moore playing James Bond and Octopussy, in which he challenges Kamal Khan to a game of backgammon. Having run out of cash because the stakes are so high, Bond instead gambles a Fabergé egg and proceeds to win the game against his arch-enemy, using the player's privilege in backgammon that allows you to exchange your dice for your opponents. Sales doubled in department stores and fashion brands made luxury sets costing hundreds and thousands of dollars. Soon, because he couldn't stop running up high bar tabs, some organizations began running their own tournaments separate from Obolensky, with huge corporate sponsorships increasing the amount of money to play for, and with bigger pots, backgammon's days of being popular were numbered. Because soon, with the commercial success and big pot sizes being advertised, you would get a rise of people in the tournaments not for the game, but for the money. Now, I'm not going to paint them as villains because they're not. 
but backgammon's downfall is certainly partly to blame on bridge players coming into the fray and slowing the play down. Soon, the game became not a spectacle, but a boring draw. Like chess going from a romantic game of dramatic moves to a more scientific approach, backgammon transformed from a game of snappy plays, big bets, and parties into a game of slow, methodical approaches. Tournament organizers watched but could do nothing as more and more bridge players started winning the tournaments. And as they did, the famous and wealthy people stopped coming. And with Abulensi's death in 1986, Backgammon lost one of its staunchest supporters. Many people moved to Texas Hold'em, which also played on TV better. It is not to say backgammon is done, as many of today's top poker players also happen to be some of the world's best backgammon players, partly thanks to similar strategies of maximizing chances and minimizing risks, strategy, and luck. There are still international tournaments, but they pale in comparison to what it was only 50 years ago. I'm sorry that I couldn't give a more optimistic picture to close it out. But what chess, backgammon, and go offer us is a unique perspective on what abstract games can bring. They all have mythological stories that offer each a beginning as a moral lesson or religious meaning before turning into secular games popular around the world. From their origins thousands of years ago, it is incredible to think that we are still playing the same games our ancestors played. Sure, we may view the games differently, but the joys we get from playing them are much the same. Even though their original messages are lost on most players now, they still have something valuable to teach. Whether it be patience and timing, how to maximize chance and minimize risk, or in case of snakes and ladders, that destiny has plans for us other than us actually getting to the top, these old games still have skills for us to learn. They, they might have lost their meaning, but not all games did. In fact, at the turn of the 20th century, many games were invented to teach very specific lessons about politics or life. And that's where we will continue our story next time. Join us for part three as we learn about Monopoly's contribution to war, Twister's image as a counterculture symbol, and other fascinating stories behind some of the most important games of the 1900s. To acknowledge the main source for the series, the main one is Tristan Donovan's excellent book, It's All a Game, and all of my sources are in each episode description. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and come watch our YouTube for reviews of games from Asia. Thank you so much for joining us. Oshimai. Oshimai.